Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello and welcome back once again to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. I am Megan. And I am Lauren. Hello. You guys don't Hello. know this because I cut it out every time, but Lauren Lauren always does this little song when we're trying to line up the audio, and it's adorable, and you'll never hear it. I'm just telling you guys. <laughs> you just make a compilation of me singing <laughs> and release it one day. Yeah, that's it. It's just going to be like three hours of Lauren just singing about lining up the audio. <laughs> it's our feature album. Get ready. It will make the charts. So yeah, so today we are talking about something interesting that our patrons requested. This was specifically Angel's idea. Thank you, Angel, and thank you to all of our patrons for giving us ideas and then giving us feedback on what you want to hear about the ideas. We really appreciate your willingness to just do some of the brain work for us. It's great. It's honestly helpful, especially, like, after, you know, recording, like, so many episodes, like, it's hard to come up with new material sometimes. So it's better just to ask you guys, like, what do you want to hear about? It's also just because, and I, Lauren, I don't know if you've looked through some of our stats for different episodes. It's a crapshoot what you guys like. Yeah. There is no consistency. No. <laughs> like. We are so bad at predicting. We're like, oh yeah, this episode is going to be real popular. And then it only ever gets like 800 downloads. And we're like, no one's going to care about this. And it's like 6,000. Right. We're like, oh. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to predict. Um, but in cool news, we have hit over 100,000 individual unique downloads. Hooray. Yeah, baby. So we're going to be... Reaching out, thank you to all of you who have entered our giveaway. Oh, did, did a lot of people enter? We have 28. We're going to be doing that drawing on the 30th, April. Um, so we'll put it on Facebook and we will be emailing the winners. So look out for that. Thank you all for entering. We've hit that. And also, Lauren, uh, it, are we, according to Listen Notes, we are no longer in the top 3%. Of okay. most popular podcasts on the globe. We are now in the top 2.5% more popular oh. podcasts on the globe. So we're getting more popular. That 0.5, baby. Yeah, and thank you uh, to the folks who've been uh, reviewing us on Spotify. Now that you can do that, that's actually really cool and really helpful. Nice, nice. Um, We did also get some feedback that I love it to share. We did get some feedback that our audio suddenly improved greatly. Um. Oh. Which is wonderful. I hope that's true for most of you. The only difference is that I moved out of my shitty apartment. That was honestly causing, like, a lot of our audio issues, but I didn't have anywhere else to record. So, pretty sure the acoustics here are much, much better. So, here now, we be. now that I've moved, my shitty apartment is no longer impacting me or any of you. So we're all just doing better now. I laughed we're growing so, and thriving. I laughed so hard when I read that when it was like, I don't know what you guys did, but it got way better. <laughs> we I moved, moved Megan. <laughs> we just moved me. Um, yeah, yeah. There were a lot of acoustical issues with my last apartment, and and like just a lot of factors. I'm not gonna go too much into it. It was not an ideal recording space. 
this is much better my current setup so hopefully it keeps getting better for you guys um yeah we also have a new patron bobby oh, we do what up bobby what up bobby bobby sent us a message comments bobby's been very active so oh yeah i forgot about that i, I saw that too yes so i think they might have one extra recent one Ooh. let's check that out no it was bobby <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Bobby! What? Bobby. He sent a really nice message, though. He, he said something about us like being like soothing or something. Which I really appreciate. I really like that. That's honestly, like, my goal in life is to, like, soothe people and be a safe space. So thank you, Bobby. Is there any other business before we take off our business socks? <laughs> business socks? That is our reference to once again listen to It's Business Time by Flight of the Concords if you haven't yet. We're just going to keep saying it until everyone listens to it. I don't, there's Ideally. no way of knowing this, but we're just encouraging everyone to do it. There's no way uh, to check the stats, but. <laughs> there's no way. Um, we don't even know how many people listen to this. How could we know if you're also watching YouTube videos? But, you know, listen to it. No, I think we actually. This is a low business one. I'm just going to do a blanket apology for how far behind I am on our patron exclusive minisodes. I have a plan. You're going to get two soon. So Ooh. I got a bit behind because uh, I moved and I'm having health problems, which fun fact, I'll be talking about quite a bit in this episode. So y'all are going <laughs> to hear is a, rant. a lot about me. Um, but yeah, so it's it's we're a bit behind, but we're catching up. So yep. yeah, and uh, feel free to join our Patreon. You get to get Patreon. You get to give us feedback on episodes, know about episode topics in advance, and get patron exclusive content, which I'm not always the most consistent about, if we're being honest. But I'm there's a plan, and I'm working on it. I also have not been the most consistent about TikTok, but follow us on TikTok, and I will make more Tiki Takis. Yeah, <laughs> watch them, Lauren. We'll make them. Watch so. me. <laughs> watches so today's episode i think we're kind of going in a lot of different directions here with our mm -hmm. research and honestly i don't know about you lord i'm kind of getting the vibe we're gonna do a second one of these at one point because i Probably. feel like there's so many different directions we could go in here but this one we just went pretty specific to what our patrons suggested they wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. But I think there's so many different directions. We'll probably do another one. So this one is all about different connections between physical and mental health. Yep. So it's a very interesting one because uh, I know somebody requested on our Patreon to know more about like if mental health issues cause physical issues or if physical issues cause mental health issues and like which is more common uh a lot of it we have no idea they're just correlations sometimes yeah. we have an idea but the research is not quite there yet but it's, there's a lot of fascinating connections i did learn some really weird stats that i didn't know um, like, uh, I did learn that premature babies, babies born before 37 weeks of gestation are more likely to deal with anxiety and depression than babies born mm -hmm. on time. Did not know that one. I th yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with, like, attachment kind of stuff. Huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Like, some NICU trauma. 
NICU trauma. NICU trauma. Yeah, because, I mean, especially, like, if you think about that, like, you're not really allowed to hold your baby as I mean, depending on, like, the situation, what of kind course. of treatment they're getting. Um, so, I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah, like, particularly, I would, I'd be curious if there's correlations between, like, how premature they were and how high it is. Because I think, like, yes. attachment-wise, there's a big difference between, like, being in a NICU for three days and being in a NICU for three months. So exactly. it's like, I would be curious more about that, but that was really interesting. Um, so I'm just going to start us off with like just some general stats about health and mental health and how they connect. I'm kind of going everywhere on this one. So basically just some general stats. These are all from the UK. These were the ones that I could find the most easily. So what up, UK? Um, So in the UK, there are 15 million people who have more one or more long-term health conditions, and more than 4 million of those also have a mental health problem. So it looks like a decent amount in that. Um, People with long-term physical conditions are more more likely to have lower well-being scores than those without. So on, like, general emotional and physical well-being measurements, people with long-term physical conditions are more likely to have a lower well-being. People with cancer, diabetes, asthma, and high blood pressure are at a greater risk of a range of mental health problems such as depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Of people with severe symptoms of mental health, problems, 37.6 also have a long-term physical condition, which compares to 25.3% of people with no or few symptoms of a mental health problem. In the mentally ill population, there are a lot more people with physical illnesses than in the general population. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Looking at kind of some more different things, um, Depression and other health conditions have a separate but additive effects on well-being. So, the combination of heart disease and depression can cause twice the reduction in social interaction. But patients with both depression and physical health problems are at, like, a higher risk of negative outcomes because the physical problem can complicate the assessment and treatment of depression by masking symptoms or mimicking. It can be really hard to tell what's mental health and what's physical health with some chronic long-term conditions. It can also work the other way, where people with any chronic physical disease feel more psychological distress than healthy people do. So there's this really weird interconnectivity. A lot of it, the research is heavily focused on depression as opposed to other mental health concerns. I don't know why that just seems like that's the research that's being done right now. We have a quote from a Professor David Goldberg of the Institute of Psychiatry in London. Again, I don't know why I was getting so many UK-based results here, but that's fine. Our UK listeners were just like, talk about us, please. We're like, we will deliver. (laughs) Got you. Um, So Professor David Goldberg reports that the rate of depression in patients with a chronic disease is almost three times higher than in the... um, non-chronic disease population. Depression Mm -hmm. and chronic physical illness are in a reciprocal relationship with one another. Not only do many chronic illnesses cause higher rates of depression, but depression has been shown to to predate some chronic physical illnesses. So, yeah, it's kind of both. Um, Yeah, it's really not like a a what came first, the chicken, like, 
you know, this is, this goes back to like psych 101, but like the brain and the body are very interconnected. Mm -hmm. Um, and to think that, you know, you can separate the two just like, isn't correct. Yeah. Yeah. They, they're often so closely linked that it's really hard to tell. Also difficult. There's really no good way to prove causation and stuff like this. No. Um, Unless we're just going to go back to doing unethical psychological studies a la the 1970s. <laughs> do not recommend. I'm sure we should do a third episode. We should. On that. Ugh. Just because it's like, and it's always the 70s. Like, I like, just. What happened? <laughs> yeah. I have, like, what, cocaine? I guess that's the only answer I can come up with. Drugs. Lots of drugs. What cocaine were they doing? is a hell of a drug. It is. Um. He said that depression, which occurs with physical illness, is less well-diagnosed than depression occurring on its own. Depression amongst those with chronic physical illnesses is likely to be missed by professionals who care for physically sick patients. This is because health professionals are understandably concerned with the physical disorder, which is usually the result for the consultation, and may not be aware of the accompanying depression. Um... Depressive illness can also precede a physical disease. It's been linked to coronary heart disease, stroke, colorectal cancer, back pain, irritable bowel syndrome, multiple sclerosis, and possibly type 2 diabetes. So, there is an interesting mix here. There's yeah. kind of a, some stuff happens before, some happens afterwards. Um, so, I'm going to talk a little bit about two things we're not going to go the most into them i i just like a brief thing because i found it really interesting um got some good research again i think we're gonna have to do a second one because whenever you just start googling health and mental illness you find so many different directions to go in and it takes a lot of time to look up a bunch of different conditions um, so these obviously are more of a symptom of an illness. Obviously, this isn't going to go. We're going to talk a little bit about blindness and deafness and mental health and some of the interesting corrections. So, of course, you know, being blind and being deaf may or may not be related to any specific illness or diagnosis. It is a form of disability, but can be caused by any number of diagnoses. But we're more of just talking about, like, overarching people who are or blind or deaf so with blindness um people suffering from vision loss are twice as likely from depression as the general population um which i knew it was higher i didn't know it was twice as likely but another thing that i found that is fascinating that i had never heard lauren did you know that psychiatric medications can cause vision problems over time I think I did know that. Um, Was it with... Did they say which specific ones? They said um, typical antipsychotics and SSRIs can lead to um, dilation of the pupils, which causes the vision to become impaired. Tricyclic antidepressants can cause blurred visions. Some seizure drugs have been linked to nearsightedness and glaucoma. And antipsychotic medications can increase a patient's risk for diabetes, which, if not controlled, can result in vision loss or blindness. And impairment of color perception can be affected by antipsychotic medications. So, it's also an interesting one. I did know about anti-seizure meds because I have been on anti-seizure meds. I do not have seizures. I will explain this more a little bit later. (laughs) Um, But... 
Yeah, I did have to get a lot more screenings for my yeah. vision when I was on those than when I wasn't because they have to check to see if it was deteriorating. Um, I did know about the antipsychotics. Um, and I think I had mentioned this in one of our earlier episodes, but there is a period of time I worked at a facility where people had um, been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I, I think that was like an issue that came up often. Right. They had been on these meds like for years, like decades. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I mean, and this is just an interesting thing in terms of it can work both ways in that, like, if you are blind or have vision loss in any variety, um, you know, obviously it doesn't specify at which point of vision loss they're seeing this increase, but vision loss and blindness, you're just more likely to have depression. But also if you have a mental illness, certain medications which will help can also cause vision issues, which is really interesting. And they are also talking about there are difficulties in um, treating depression in the blind population just because of, you know, inaccessibility of services, difficulty, getting places and also people who have depression sometimes struggle with follow-through and going to appointments if you're so depressed that you can't get out of bed it makes it very difficult to get out of bed and go to an appointment um so can cause some concerns which also you know if you are depressed and you are also blind that would presumably make it more difficult to travel to an impo- to an appointment which would make you possibly even less likely to get treatment than a sighted person with depression so i thought that was interesting um yes. there's also data from community samples indicate that people with low vision and or blindness are 1.6 to 2.8 times more likely to develop depression even after controlling for demographic variables. How, and vision impairment has been shown to increase the risk for depression even after adjusting for demographic, socioeconomic, and health factors. So it seems like how they have researched it, it does seem like it is more of a direct connection even when they control for things. Another one talking about deafness. Uh, Deaf people are two times more likely to experience mental health issues in general. So variety. So similar rates between blind and deaf people to have an increased mental illness. Mm -hmm. Um, So another thing that I came across that could be a contributing factor to depression amongst the deaf population is that the deaf population is four times more likely to be unemployed than the hearing population, Mm. which would impact, you know... Obviously, social support, having the money to seek treatment for your mental illness. And a lot Mm -hmm. of times people who are unemployed do have higher rates of depression. So there's that. There also, of course, need to throw out that in the deaf community, there are a lot of barriers to seeking mental health treatment because there are not enough mental health professionals who are fluent in sign language. Um, so there is that as well, where it can just be significantly harder to seek adequate treatment if you do have a mental illness, just for accessibility reasons, because getting comfortable with a therapist is one thing. Getting comfortable with a therapist and an interpreter who's interpreting your therapy sessions is like a whole different level of discomfort. So yeah, and I thought those are both interesting. Um, again, not going to go too much into this, but it does seem like, yeah, both blind and deaf people are more likely to have mental illness and new research suggesting that vision loss or hearing loss increases a person's risk of developing dementia 
And if you lose one of the senses, so if you lose either hearing or sight, you are 11% more likely to get dementia. If you lose both your hearing and your sight, you are 86% more likely to get dementia than people who do not lose those. So I thought that was interesting as well. That's pretty new research, so they don't know the exact mechanisms of that, but interesting stuff. I'm guessing <clears throat> that has something to do with, like, just, like, the brain. <sighs> Maybe, like, something with, like, perception? I don't know. That's really interesting. Yeah, and, like, I couldn't access the full study, so another thing that I am curious about... Mm -hmm. is and like again i'd have to do way more research on this but a lot of this didn't parse it out so we know that the blind and deaf populations do have an increased risk of dementia and mental illness in general i did not see this broken down between people who were born blind oh. or deaf and people who become blind or deaf later in life because even what i was reading in the blindness study, they said that depression was much more common. Anxiety was only more common in blind people who had just found out they were going blind. Oh. So what they said is, like, there was an increased anxiety right around the time of diagnosis when people sure. still had pretty good vision, but they found out, which I think makes a lot makes of sense. Makes a ton of sense, sense yeah. If you find out that something is going to happen to your body that's going to change your entire life, you're naturally going to be more anxious. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of things yeah. to worry about, about what your life is going to look like, how you can rearrange things, how you can make this work, when it's going to happen, all of those different things. That can increase anxiety. But it didn't seem to say that that was necessarily long-term. That was more of an adjustment, just like I've met people who went deaf later in life mm -hmm. and they definitely responded different than the deaf people I've met who are deaf since birth so I would right. be curious kind of how that shifts things because I would imagine if you lose your senses you'd probably be have a significant level of distress about that that somebody who's born without that sense may not feel distressed about that and mental health concerns might be more related to barriers in society to managing there and not like distress about the illness itself or distress about the lack of a sense sure well that makes sense i mean would you consider yourself fluent in sign language no um okay. not fluent i am this has kind of been a long-term thing for me so I guess for those of you who don't know I did um minor in deafness rehabilitation so yeah I did minor in deafness rehabilitation which was basically a disability studies minor plus sign language as your foreign language so I did take sign language I absolutely love it I have never been fluent but I do have a pretty big passion for ASL and the um, deaf community if I do. So I don't do therapy in sign language. I have done social work with the deaf population, but always with a licensed sign language interpreter present, even if I knew what the person was saying, because also it is a deaf person's legal right to have a ASL interpreter, a licensed interpreter at any interaction. So I've always fought pretty hard that I'm not licensed, therefore should not be the person who's actually like interpreting. But I, ha I have tossed around the idea of actually seeking an interpreter's license. 
um, at some point in time, but I would never do therapy in ASL unless I became a licensed interpreter. Got it. I just feel okay. like I just feel like that's kind of the most appropriate way to do it. I don't market that I know ASL um, because I think it would be disingenuous because I'm not fluent. I'm conversant ish at this point. Mm. Okay, I was just curious. Yeah. All right. So um, the next thing that we're gonna get into is trauma and autoimmune disorders everything comes back to trauma it always does especially and so yeah we're gonna get into it but i mean i always tend to look into this type of stuff just because the majority of my clients are folks with trauma and ptsd Mm -hmm. and autoimmune disorders yeah because that comes through the door all the time so a recent study by Boggs Bookwalter et al. 2020, so this is pretty recent, finds that people suffering from PTSD may have an increased risk of developing autoimmune diseases. These findings support a growing body of evidence showing a link between PTSD, stress, and physical health. So that study examined the link between PTSD and the risk of developing an autoimmune dis- disorder. Um, and the certain disorders they kind of took a peek at were rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, and multiple sclerosis. Um, and this study took place in the United States. So they took a look, <coughs> excuse me, at active duty personnel. Per- participants in the study were enrolled in the Millennium Study Cohort which investigated health effects associated with military service workers. Um, From the Millennium Cohort, about 120,572 were serving in active duty when completing the baseline survey and were not diagnosed with prior autoimmune conditions when enrolled in this study. So that's the really important part. Participants were classified into two categories, those with PTSD, D and those with other mental health conditions, with the exception of PTSD. At baseline, 8% of males and 9% of females were diagnosed with PTSD. Men and women with a history of PTSD were likely to have a history of another mental health condition, combat experience, or physical or sexual trauma. Prior combat experiences were more common among males and sexual physical trauma were more common among females, which we know statistically. Yeah. Um, The author found that U.S. personnel who were on active duty with a history of PTSD were associated with an increased risk of selected autoimmune conditions with a uh, a duration between baseline and following up averaging five years. So taking a look like five years apart. Mm -hmm. Additionally, there was approximately 60% increased risk for developing autoimmune diseases for personnel with a history of PTSD relative to those without a history of PTSD. So the authors were able to conclude that biological changes that take place in the body of individuals with PTSD and possibly those with high levels of stress impact the the immune system through enhanced inflammation, activated genes, and accelerated emergence of immune cells. All of these together, they proposed, indicated an association of PTSD with 
and stress with autoimmune conditions that were similar for both survivors of combat and survivors of physical or sexual trauma. This is a big study. Very important. Yeah. So aside from this study, and, you know, there's a growing body of evidence. Um, so, so okay. So we have this research, and the research is growing. This is just an, a recent interesting study related to mm-hmm. it. Um, but aside from just that biological impact, we're also understanding how much the gut um, is connected to trauma and stress. So the gut is now recognized as a home to a vast microbiome of bacteria, viruses, pathogens, and fungi that interact with the brain in complex ways. When these fall out of balance, the consequence can be complex. This can result from food or chemical intake, changes in body chemistry, and other factors that favor one kind of organism over others. All right, so just to kind of roll with that. So basically, the immune system is particularly sensitive to stress. This is just a fact. Mm -hmm. The primary stress hormone of the body is cortisol. And cortisol has influence over the immune system. It generally helps balance immune function. When stress is severe, the control of cortisol over the immune system can be permanently impaired, leading to increased inflammation. The increase in inflammation can lead to a range of diseases and disorders, including autoimmune disorders, heart disease, and diabetes, kind of like how we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. In the case of PTSD, it has a slew of effects on our physiology. The stress response system, however, may be the driving force behind autoimmune symptoms. Normally, cortisol, the primary messenger of the stress response, works as a natural inhibitor of inflammation. This is why doctors often prescribe synthetic cortisol analogs to treat inflammatory conditions. When stress is pervasive or extreme, the body begins to become resistant to cortisol or doesn't produce as much cortisol. So that's a really important part and just kind of understanding like these impacts is, you know, if you're just having these cortisol dumps or if your body's not responding to it, you know, basically, you know, we want to think about like the brain and body is like kind of like a computer and it's just not Mm -hmm. sending the right signals anymore. And so it starts attacking itself because it's not sure what to do. Um, A person I did want to bring up in terms of trauma and autoimmune disorders is Gabor Mate. Have you heard of him? I have not, but I'm just going to throw it out there. I love that name. It's a great name. He is so cool in the emdr world he is like the guy um and yeah he's very interesting um so he um um so g er, (laughs) important researcher um so he is actually a physician and an author and he has a background in family practice and a special interest in childhood development and trauma and their potential lifelong impacts on physical and mental health. So he takes a look at autoimmune diseases, cancer, ADHD, addiction, and other conditions. Um, but as a physician, he became really interested in these effects of, you know, mental health and how it impacted the body. Um, so he had a really awesome interview in the sun and I just wanted to read, um, 
a little ex excerpt of something that he shared that I thought was really interesting. Yes. So, um, the interviewer of this article, their name, their last, or her name is Tracy Frisch. So when I say Frisch, that's what I'm talking about. Um, so Frisch asked, what led you to become interested in the connection between illness and environmental pressures? Matei said, as a family physician, I began to notice that notice that who got sick and who didn't was completely random. Well, wasn't completely random. I was like, wait. <laughs> the exact um, opposite of that, the point of this article. <laughs> <laughs> that people who got sick more often tended to have more stressful lives, and I began to think that the stress had a lot to do with their illnesses. I am not the first to arrive at that thought, which has been amply validated by research over the decades. Stress is a significant factor in the onset of diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and cancer. But the research is generally not part of medical education. Doctors are trained to understand disease as a random event usually caused by external agents, bacteria, viruses, or genetics. We're not taught to look at patients' formative experience or multi-generational stress patterns. Yet, both of my observations in the research literature clearly indicate that you can't separate people's bodies from their environments. Consider all the stresses of life in a society where people feel little sense of control and lots of uncertainty all the time, where people are expected to behave contrary to their true nature, where relationships are often troubled, where parents are not able or not available for their kids because they're too busy. Under such conditions, you're more likely to get sick. <clears throat> Nearly 50% of American adults have chronic illness. On top of that, the U.S. has an inequitable health care system that provides good care to some but minimal care to others, and the debilitating expense of health care stresses patients further, kind of what we are talking about before. Frisch asked, we all experience stress, but we don't all get sick. What makes some people more prone to illness than others? Matei said, people who have chronic illness of any kind, cancer, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, inflammatory bowel disease, chronic neurological and skin disorders, often fit certain personality profiles. For example, they tend to pay a lot more attention to the needs of others than their own. They get caught up in their job or their role as a caregiver rather than looking after themselves. They also tend to suppress the so-called negative emotions, such as sadness and anger. They try not to acknowledge these emotions even to themselves. And finally, they tend to think they are responsible for how other people feel and tend to be terrified of disappointing others who are important to them. So an overwhelming sense of responsibility and self-suppression is what tends to characterize the chronically ill. Frisch asks, how, or have there been studies that support this? Matei says, yes. In some studies of women who have breast biopsies, psychologists could predict with relative certainty who would be diagnosed with cancer based purely on their personality profiles. They were right as much as 90% of the time. The so-called cancer personality has been studied particularly in the relationship to multiple melanoma, a type of skin cancer. Of course, the personality doesn't cause the disease, but it does increase your risk of getting it. And then Frisch asks, asks, are there different personalities for people who have cancer and people who have heart disease? Well, there are two kinds of people who are prone to heart disease. One type is the rageful type A workaholic. After a fit of rage, your chance of having a heart attack or stroke doubles for the next two hours because your blood pressure is up, your adrenaline is up, clotting factors are increased, and your blood 
vessels have narrowed. In the long term, you'll suffer high blood pressure, constriction of the arteries, and so on. The other type of person who gets heart disease is the emotional suppressor. They express no anger at all, not even healthy anger. They tend to get disease of the heart muscle instead of the coronary arteries being damaged by high blood pressure. The cardiac muscle is weakened. Hmm. Frisch asks, why shouldn't we make an effort to stay calm? Doesn't anger hurt relationships? To say that we shouldn't have anger is like saying that we shouldn't have rain. We may not like getting wet, but without it, there's no irrigation. Healthy anger is a necessary response to get a boundary, to a boundary invasion. It's our way of saying, you're in my space, get out. You see this behavior in animals too. It's not a question of should or shouldn't. It's a part of our makeup. The role of emotion is to keep out which is dangerous or unhealthy and allow us, and allow in which helpful and healing. So we have anger and revulsion, and we have love and attraction. Now rage is always unhealthy. Rage is an anger that is disproportionate to the situation. It usually arises from past experiences, not present boundary issues, and it keeps going on and on. It's not discharged once you've protected your boundaries. It's the result of frustration that's built up for many years, like a pressure cooker that explodes. Anger that is repressed can also turn inward. People who repress their anger can actually suppress their immune immune system, making it turn against itself. When that happens, you're going to get autoimmune disease. Anger and the immune system have the same purpose, to protect boundaries. The immune system does its job of attacking, attacking foreign particles, and the anger does its job of keeping out human invasions. When you suppress your response to a boundary invasion, you're going to become stressed. If I started rifling through your purse, for instance, and you didn't object but instead repressed your anger, you'd feel very stressed because you'd be worried I'd take your money. It takes tremendous energy to suppress emotions. The act itself is stress-producing. Self-suppression is not innate. It's a learned coping style. When you're a child and your parents can't handle your feelings, you learn to suppress them to maintain your relationship with your parents. But what was a coping response in childhood becomes a source of illness in the adult. And that's just a, lo a little clip of that interview. It is interesting how some studies, I mean, obviously it's not like we can necessarily prove causation, but there are a lot of studies yeah. coming out about some of these things that are connected. And that absolutely and i mean what he's saying like makes sense like i think it tracks i, I mean it resonates with me a lot mm -hmm. um it's just very very interesting stuff yeah it is all right all right and what a segue into my big topic for today so we had a specific request for talking about chronic illness and mental health and you know i just decided to talk about the chronic illness that i in fact have because hey i can speak from personal experience here and tell you guys some horrible horrible things about my life and what i jokingly like to call my soft shitty body um not i don't hate my body i'm not like super negative but uh you have to have a sense of humor when you're in pain all the time so uh yeah you know it's a little, little spoony 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 so um so gonna talk to you guys a bit today about fibromyalgia so i guess first i'll just give you a general background on what it is. Um, so I'm going to talk a bit about it. And I, this all is from 
The research part is really based on the an article from the Psychology Research and Behavior Management Journal. It's called The Psychological Imp Impact of Fibromyalgia, Current Perspectives. It's by Carmen Galvez Sanchez, Stefan Duchek, and Gustavo Reyes del, Reyes del Paso. So... Um, it's really interesting, but also I am going to throw a lot of personal experience and anecdotes in here. Um, so I guess like a bit, I'll, I'll talk more about me in a little bit. We'll just kind of start with the research. So for those of you who don't know, fibromyalgia is a chronic disorder characterized by widespread and persistent musculoskeletal pain. It predominantly affects women uh, between 61 and 90 percent, with an estimated prevalence of 2 to 4 percent in the general population. So pain is kind of the main thing that people know about, but there's also a ton of other things that are really, really common in people with fibromyalgia. So additional associated symptoms are fatigue, insomnia, morning stiffness, depression, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, headache, fever, diarrhea, oral ulcers, so like canker sores, uh, those big ulcers in your mouth, dry eyes, vomiting, constipation, skin rashes, hearing difficulties, hair loss, painful and frequent urination, etc. Um, it's associated with a high socioeconomic cost for the healthcare system between medical visits, specialized consultations, diagnostic tests, drug, other therapies, and the workforce with sick leave, high rates of absenteeism, and decreased work-related productivity. Uh, my favorite thing is there's still a bunch of people who think that this is not a real thing, but it was recognized as an illness by the World Health Organization in 1992. And the etiology remains unknown. Current pathophysiological models assume a central sensitization to pain and impairments in the pain inhibitory mechanism. So the way that I have personally always had this explained to me by some of my doctors is basically everybody's body has a certain threshold for pain. So this is not like the perceptive, like, I have a high pain tolerance, I have a low pain tolerance. It's not about, like, what you can tolerate. It's literally the threshold that your nervous system recognizes as pain. So, like, there's a reason, there's a mechanism in your brain that if someone taps you gently on the shoulder, you don't recognize that as painful. But if they slap you really hard on the shoulder, there's enough stimuli that your brain has identified its pain and it interprets it that way. When you have fibromyalgia, your brain interprets much lower thresholds as painful stimuli, even if they're not necessarily, like they wouldn't be painful for other people, but it's your brain is literally interpreting things as painful that should not be painful. Um, I'm sure Lauren, having known me for so long, can verify that there are very weird things that hurt me that absolutely should not hurt me whatsoever. Yes. Like, that, like people will poke me and occasionally it's excruciatingly painful. Um, so it's fascinating. So yeah. I mean, overall, fibromyalgia, or fibro, I just call it fibro, personally, uh, it's a real downer. <laughs> Huge downer, would not recommend. <laughs> it sucks in general. Um, so I guess, like, some things that I'll throw out there is mine, just for my own background, now that I gave you guys the general overview, is I have had chronic pain since middle school really was about when it started um 
and got worse throughout high school and then got really, really bad, uh, like between college and grad school was when it kind of got to a point where I couldn't take it anymore. So when I was, I've seen tons of doctors. I started seeing doctors in middle and high school for primarily knee pain was the part of the pain they focused so much on because it's very hard to articulate when everything hurts all the time. But my knees were particularly bad, underwent tons of testing, so much testing, determined that I also had a decent amount of hypermobility. They told me that would go away as I got older. That was not the case. I also have been diagnosed with joint hypermobility syndrome. There is some confusion as to whether or not I actually have fibromyalgia or joint hypermobility syndrome or both, but there's so much overlap and it's all like, um, it's an exclusionary diagnosis. So you diagnose it by pretty much ruling out everything else it could be. So there's no way to tell what's what at this point. Um, but I was in and out of doctors. I've done years of physical therapy to manage injuries and other just general aches and pains. Um, it was not until... But even then, I like it was a very like dismissive process, which you'll hear from a lot of people with fibromyalgia that it takes a long time to get a diagnosis because people just don't believe you. And then it was when I was in grad school, I actually got diagnosed by a randomly assigned doctor at U of I. It was like my campus assigned doctor. This was after the first, well, no, this was the first one. I was in three car accidents in three years and it kept getting worse each one. This was after the first accident I went in because it had been like two months and I felt like the car accident had still happened the day before and I had this amazing doctor who actually like pushed back other patients listened to me for like an hour and a half and was like I'm pretty sure you have fibromyalgia and you've been sick like your entire life and car accidents make it a lot worse any physical trauma makes it worse for a long time so I got diagnosed in grad school, didn't start any medication or anything because I was about to move home. Uh, I then moved home, my primary care, care doctor, I told her about the diagnosis. She flat out told me to my face she did not believe me and that I, quote, just oh. had depression. Um, based on a five-point depression screening that she did, um, which it would have been fine if I was depressed, but that wasn't the actual problem. uh, Because she told me that I had depression when the only symptoms I had were pain and fatigue. Oh. That was it. Like, she told me I was depressed. Like, those were the only things on the screen that actually popped up were pain and fatigue. Um, And she's like, yeah, you just have depression. And then I gave her a lecture on how uh, that's not how you diagnose depression. Uh, the problem right. is when I get angry, I cry. So that was not doing a great job of like expressing that I'm not in fact depressed when you're sobbing while talking to your doctor. Uh, but I, f- I am the same way. <laughs> I fired her immediately. Eventually, got doctors, got medication. It got really bad. Um, got better. Most of the time I'm pretty okay now. Uh, lately I'm in the middle of the worst pain flare I've had in years, hence uh, the, just the lack of patron-exclusive content. Sorry guys, I really have not been getting out of bed unless I absolutely have to lately, so uh, your content is coming. But that's like kind of a little bit about my personal history with it. I do have a ton of symptoms. I'm not going to bore you with like the really intense amount of symptoms that I do have on a fairly regular basis, but it's not just pain. It just sucks in general. It's just like everything's <laughs> terrible. Uh, you get like these, I call them nerve storms, which is not like a real thing, but like every once in a while your arm's just on fire for some amount of time and it goes away. Mm. It's real fun. 
Um, so there are factors that predispose individuals to fibromyalgia, such as accidents. Uh, fun fact, I've been in seven car accidents in my life. Zero percent at fault for all of them. I'd like to clarify, I'm not a terrible driver. I just have had a string of bad luck. <laughs> Uh, so I always have to clarify that I'm not just that terrible at driving the three car accidents in three years, all three of them, my car was stopped at a red light at the time and someone just drove into me. I can vouch for this. So it's just like, okay. Um, so that does make it worse. So traffic and work injuries, fractures. I have broken a lot of bones and also because I am hypermobile as well as having fibromyalgia, I get pretty severe soft tissue damage. I get injured severely by stuff that shouldn't injure me because my joints have too much give so they'll just like go the wrong way and then I have a torn ligament super fun um there are medical interventions and complications so surgeries and infections and emotional trauma particularly sexual and physical abuse and neglect there's also environmental factors like stressful life events may be associated with the onset Typically, if you have a history of physical or sexual abuse, you experience poorer psychological adjustment, greater distress, and more severe clinical symptoms, and use more healthcare services. In general, studies have found an association between traumas during childhood and adolescence and the level of disability. So basically, the more, you know, it's all negative life events, not just abuse and violence, the more childhood mm -hmm. trauma you have the worse your fibro typically is in that okay. there's also a dysregulation of a stress response mechanisms um, and other chronic conditions such as chronic fatigue early stress and human development could alter stress mechanisms leading to increased vulnerability to stress-related disorders lengthy trauma or life stress in childhood and adulthood seems to negatively affect your brain's modulation symptoms of pain and emotions so when you have fibro mm -hmm. you tend to be pretty dysregulated in both um just interesting things since you know i'm pretty comfortable talking about this i really don't care who knows that i have fibro i don't feel any shame about or anything so in terms of some predisposed factors my symptoms largely came and got really bad in high school there were definitely i think some early warning signs from like childhood on that there was going to be a problem but my symptoms really came sure. out strong um after some events when i was in eighth grade so okay. hooray eighth grade megan just straight up not having a good time march and april of eighth grade so basically right before my symptoms popped through three things happened so like they say it's medical interventions from infections and surgery and emotional trauma basically i had a quick back-to-back -back stretch where i had okay and possibly strep and then that led to bronchitis so i immediately okay. went through that so I, like had been a little bit sick i got bronchitis and it was bad enough so your immune system was down my immune system was down um so and my bronchitis was actually it was mono then bronchitis that's what it actually was i got oh. mono i got bronchitis um, my bronchitis was so bad that i was having coughing fits that were lasting 45 minutes at a time straight up thought i was gonna die a couple times because i could not breathe because i was cross coughing so hard was on a ton of medications to get this all under control finally got slightly healthy and then my dad died so it was this like couple months where i had immense physical stress and then immense emotional stress 
And yep. our good friend Fibro, like, really swung into full force after that, which to me makes perfect yeah. sense. Um, there is... Yeah, it does. There is some other research that um, a lot of uh, people with fibromyalgia did have mono. I've, so I had kind of this, and the thing is, like, mono can reactivate in your system and cause problems. So there are some interesting research studies with fibro that basically it's, like, something you're predisposed to that gets triggered by stress, and specifically if you have, like, mono and stress. So I got super sick, missed a ton of right. school, and my body after that was like, actually, we give up. <laughs> Never mind. We're yeah. just gonna feel terrible forever at this point. So... Some of the stuff that I think, like, is really interesting, um, and this is another thing that leads to a lot of stigma with fibromyalgia, and Lauren, I don't know if you've ever heard of this with different illnesses, but people with fibro show a blunted hypothalamus pituitary adrenal reactivity, which leads to an inappropriate cortisol response to stress and daily living. So, like, everything stresses out. It's just like your body is Mm -hmm. just constantly like you're sitting. I have a watch now that measures my stress levels. And it is the funniest thing is there have been times where it will literally tell me like, you need to relax. You're an extremely high stress level. And I'm like, I have been lying down for an hour and 45 minutes (laughs) watching The Simpsons. Like this is like the least stressed out I get. So I don't know. It's kind of all over the place with like stress responses. But yeah. You also end up with with how this works, with a reduced reactivity to physical and psychological stressors. So it's like it, mm. it leads to reduced effect of blood pressure is decreased. The negative effect of life impacts be enhanced, but it... And they're also due to the patient's tendency towards catastrophizing avoidance or inhibition of emotions. That puts it in there. But like straight up because you have reduced reactivity to stressors and you handle crises really well and like reduced blood pressure straight up no one believes you because your body doesn't even respond to pain anymore i've been in the er after a car accident brought in on a stretcher and they like refuse to give me any pain medication because they're like you're not in any pain and i'm like disagree but you don't end up like my blood pressure was actually pretty low because it always is yeah it's just like it just your body just doesn't respond to normally anymore so so i'm sure like part of the sigma or sigma (laughs) stigma is drug seeking like people yeah okay oh yeah um i have the really unfortunate combination of having uh fibromyalgia and also having a negative response to ibuprofen that basically makes every er think i am a hundred percent a drug seeker and like you can't if if the er staff thinks you're a drug seeker there's like nothing you can do to convince them otherwise because saying i don't want drugs doesn't do it um, so it, it has caused some problems with treatment in the past, I think, which is funny because, like, I didn't even take, um, I refused painkillers literally after surgery. I wouldn't even take them when I got my tonsils out. I took the Tylenol with codeine once and it made me throw up. And so I literally just took oh. regular Tylenol after surgery. Like, even when I was there immediately afterwards, I was like, no, I'm fine. I don't need anything. So mm-hmm. it is quite funny because, like, I'm actually pretty, uh, against taking pain medication unless it's absolutely necessary probably because I'm in pain all the time anyways so I just like I'll only take it after a certain I won't even take a leave until my pain reaches a certain point but like in terms of prescription pain meds I've taken them twice in my entire life like two individual pills but that combination of things 
it just like it throws out alarm bells so there are a lot of negative stereotypes that people are lazy and making it up um i've definitely heard fibromyalgia on the internet being called fat fucks disease so that's always really oh my yeah God. that's like a common one in some circles uh which uh you know just fuck you everyone who's saying that that has nothing to do with it um i was because I, I, I think, right, people want to, like, blame you for being sick and having this weird... And the symptoms are vague. Like, it is... It does... It sure. sounds weird. There's more and more research. There's actually a comp... But it's, like... In my mind, like, why would you put yourself through, like, seeing doctors and paying for doctors and trying different meds and doing all... Like, unless, like, you had, like, some other sort of, like, disorder. But, like... That just, like, does not make right. sense to me. That's why I never, like, questioned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the thing is, like, it, it does, like, there is undoubtedly a weight impact. My heaviest weight was probably about 80 pounds above where I am right now. I did lose weight specifically to help manage my illness and increase mobility. I am 100% not saying that is the right path for anyone and you have to. Like, it did right. benefit me personally so did changes to diet and my exercise levels and finding an exercise program i can actually do consistently that being said i am a hundred percent still sick i absolutely still have it it did not make it go away it did not i was actually like at a lower weight i mean i was i was in high school i was at a pretty low weight like well within the healthy range when all of this started probably on the low end of the healthy range and it was years of being in pain and everything making it worse that led to me. I did a lot of stress eating and I didn't do sure. much. Like, right? That was kind of a coping thing that I gained a bunch of weight. I did lose it. I'm still sick. There's that weird stigma. And also, like, fat stigma definitely goes a lot into this and fat phobia where it's just like, you have this because you're fat. And it's just like, they're unrelated. Like, symptom management can change and everyone can make that choice for themselves what they want to do with it. Right. But that's not the cause of it whatsoever. There actually is a company that came up with a blood test, which means that there are tests you can actually run that prove that you have this. So there are some real things. I'm sure that's relieving in some ways. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And there's some interesting studies that are happening right now. Um, I would have loved to get into the clinical trial. I wasn't able to get into a clinical trial, but there's one study right now that I genuinely believe in based on research. So I, I think there's some pretty exciting stuff, but... Having this definitely impacts um, psychological stuff quite a bit. So kind of the research is it negatively affects functioning at the physical, psychological, social levels, impairing social relationships, ability to fulfill family and work responsibilities, daily like activities, and mental health, not only due to pain, but because of fatigue, cognitive deficits, and other associated symptoms. Quality of life relatives can also be affected. Work is affected due to the tension between health problems and work demands um that is actually fully the reason why i don't work a steady full-time job anymore i went into private practice purely for the flexibility so i could manage it better that has single-handedly been the thing that has helped me out the most is being able to do my own schedule and do things how i want to so i can manage um mm -hmm. i also have lower cognitive performance Woo! That brain fog. Fibromyalgia patients usually report... You would never know, though. Right? I... You come off very articulate. Thank you. I definitely have my days. 
uh, where I'm very brain foggy and I make no sense and I choose not to work on those days. Luckily, there are few and far between right now. So that has been great. But it yeah. can be kind of impairments, problems in planning, attention and memory, executive functions and processing speed uh, can be difficulties with concentration, forgetfulness, decreased vocabulary, poor verbal fluency and mental slowness. Some days it really does feel like you're thinking through jello and the decreased vocabulary thing. I just straight up forget words sometimes and I know I know them like they're in there. It's just like you can't always access information when it gets really bad. Um, but again, that's exactly why I flexed my work schedule because my clients do not need to see me when I'm like that. Luckily, that tends to happen to me like once every couple months at this point in time where it gets bad enough that I can't think clearly anymore. Um, there's so uh, it's linked to greater negative affect as well, which is a state of distress composed of aversive emotions like sadness, fear, anger and guilt. Um, fibromyalgia patients tend to experience high levels of stress, anger, and pain catastrophizing, um, which are all associated with worsening of symptoms. Uh, psychiatric disorders can accompany rheumatic diseases because this is also, fibrous kind of considered like maybe autoimmune, maybe rheumatic. They're still looking into it. Um, yeah, I was curious what it fell under. Right now, uh, it kind of falls onto your question mark. It's very okay. hard to find doctors to treat it just because some rheumatologists will treat it. Some don't consider a rheumatic illness. So it really just depends. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's, we're, we're still researching. We're still figuring it out. Um, mm -hmm. But fibromyalgia patients display a high rate of anxiety. Between 20 and 80% of fibro patients have anxiety and depressive disorders. That's between 13% and 63.8. Specifically, a higher prevalence in fibro patients than the general population was observed for generalized anxiety disorder, panic attack, phobias, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, major depressive disorder, dysthymia, and bipolar disorders. So, Quite a lot of things are more common once you have fibro. Um, the intense, intensity of negative affective states is positively, cor positively correlated with increased pain intensity, irritability, physical and mental strain, functional limitations, the number of tender points, non-restorative sleep, cognitive deficits, fatigue, and the impact of illness on the quality of life. So basically, the more negatively you are emotionally about having it, the worse your physical symptoms tend to be. So the psychological part makes makes the physical part worse. And then I think the physical part gets worse. So you feel worse about it. And it's a kind of vicious loop. Um, patients usually feel isolated, misunderstood and rejected by relatives, friends, health workers and society in general. Yes, uh, not anymore. I have a wonderful group of people who are very understanding. Um, I know Lauren, I'm just going to toss out Lauren is like the best because she's always been pretty chill if we have plans. And I'm like, I can't get out of bed. She'll be more likely to be like, I'll just come over. We can watch TV and hang out like, which is I will get into very your helpful. <laughs> it's big enough for two people and a dog. So come on in. Um, it definitely is helpful to have friends like that who are so understanding. Um, I have definitely lost friends because of it because sometimes I just really can't do things. And some people, if you can't go out and do things, they're just not going to keep hanging out with you. Um, so it does, which can also contribute to the high prevalence of depression. Um, 
and anxiety. And so it really is interesting because it is this whole, like, being in pain tends to make you depressed. Of course. So does not being able to get out of bed and not being able to do things. And even, like, that's what I was going to say is, like, even, like, feeling like I can't do things that I would like to be doing, like, you know, it makes you feel, like, left Mm -hmm. out. Yeah, and I think um, for me, too, there is, like, a very depressing element of, like, having to come to terms with the fact that the last time I wasn't in pain was, like, elementary school. And this is pretty much going to be present forever unless some of these new studies pan out. Great, right? It is possible if things go well. You know, you never know what science is going to come up with. But there is an acceptance part, and I think there is, like, a strong... There's a strong amount of connections here, and it really does go both ways, where it's like you feel terrible physically, which makes you feel terrible mentally, and then you're really stressed out, and then you feel worse physically because you're stressed out. Um, it It is interesting because literally since I got this watch that measures stress levels, I can now pretty accurately predict if my stress level is above a certain part for three days in a row, I will have a pain flare. Um, so I'm actually able to get the data now, which is somewhat helpful in terms of planning things and being able to modify what I need to to get it under control. Um, I trend a bit more personally on the anxiety side over the depression side. I have experienced both at different points in my life, um, tend to worry a bit more, as Lauren can attest to. I am a bit of a worrier at times, which is totally fine. But again, like, it is... The more you can do, it's it's definitely an illness, just like a lot of chronic illnesses are, that you really are best off approaching it from a physical and mental well-being perspective than just treating the physical. You need to treat both. You need to address both because they're so linked together and they make each other so mm-hmm. much worse that you will do much better if you treat both. I think everyone with it should, if you are able to, get a therapist. It'll help. It may not necessarily get rid of your pain, but, like, the better you can cope with it, the easier it will be for you. Um, But, yeah, like, there's also some interesting personality stuff that I wanted to touch on quickly, um, which I thought was very fascinating because um, I don't actually have that much of a typical fibro personality from what they're saying. So I guess Lauren can probably chime in a bit more because we've been friends for 13 years as we were discussing before this and then we both had a moment about how long that's been like she can probably chime in with things um but yeah uh, there there are some debates with a fibromyalgia personality necessarily um one thing is that some personality disorders are actually more prevalent in fibromyalgia patients than the general population, including obsessive compulsive personality disorder, borderline personality, avoidant personality, and histrionic. Okay. So um, uh, that that's just an interesting factoid. They're a bit more prevalent. Some studies have observed a predominance of certain personality traits, uh, such as perfectionism, guilty as charged on that, that one. I for sure have. Well, I, I'll own up to that one. Um, mm-hmm. Alexithymia, which is a difficulty identifying your feelings, which okay. I'm pretty good at identifying my feelings. That's, yeah, I feel like you don't struggle. That's with not that. a struggle for me personally. Neuroticism. Which is the worrier part? Okay. So I'm like, yeah, okay, okay, okay. I, I'll I'll own sure, sure. that one. Um, <laughs> but psychoticism, 
Are you familiar with what that actually means? Okay, no. Let me just prone to take risks and engage in antisocial behavior, uh, impulsiveness, or nonconformative behavior. I, I'm not much of a risk taker. No. I, I, I no, not in that way. No, no. no I'm a more of a. I'm a very calculated risk taker. Uh, If anything, I'm like the mom of the group telling everybody that decisions are probably not a good idea. (laughs) Um, I'm not the one egging on risky behaviors ever. I feel like that's more Or at least it used to be. Wild card. Wild card. Do it! And I'm Mm -hmm. in the background like, have we weighed the pros and cons, Lauren? And you're already... And I'm like, impulsive. You're, you're the one that convinced, what, like, 13 of us to go get piercings at <laughs> you, you were, I think, the instigator of that. A thousand percent. And... We were at a conference presenting psychological research, and we all ended up with piercings. And I ended up getting my nose pierced, and as Lauren can uh, testify, my decision to get my nose pierced was uh, phased heavily with, like, uh, just panic for hours i went back and forth a bunch and then did it and i love it again to the muse to muse just listening to like a muse cd well actually (laughs) to this day the only reason this is the fun fact about the muse cd is i actually always wanted my nose pierced but a guy i had dated Uh for several years thought they were the grossest thing ever and was super against Mm -hmm. them and we had just broken up before that conference not too long before and that muse album happened to have our song that he decided was our song so i literally got my nose pierced as a fuck you to my ex-boyfriend that is actually that's just funny uh but even then that was one of my more like woo riskier things i've done in my life and it was like i went back and forth for like four hours and almost didn't do it <laughs> it took and a minute that song played and got me angry and i did it um and i love it it's a great decision but that and you still have it I to do. this day i think i'm the only person that still has their piercing mm-hmm. from that i'm the only one that kept it uh, a lot of them got infected that was not reminded <laughs> to but i managed to <laughs> that was it. not that was great, not great. Um, Mine ended up, like, chipping my enamel. It okay. wasn't great. You got a smiley. I got a yeah. smiley. It was, it was cute yeah. while it lasted, though. I liked it. Yeah, it was, it was a fun yeah. time. My family hated yeah, it, they, but, they did. you know. <laughs> so did mm-hmm. everyone. So did David. Do you remember David's response? Like, to, he was... <sighs> he was just so disappointed in me, like, 90% of the time. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Yeah. Uh, but... It, it's all also good. says like avoidant personality traits and like a type D personality, which is high negative affect with a social inhibition. Um, so again, like there's definitely I'm I'm definitely more on the like neurotic perfectionist personality type and a bit less okay. on like the risk taker and high negative affect and social inhibition part. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, high. With that, uh, high neuroticism and low conscientiousness have been found to be related with higher levels of chronic pain in fibromyalgia patients. Again, the low conscientiousness is like super high impulsivity. It is interesting. Of course, it's like where it's definitely with personality stuff. It's going to hit some people, not other people, but I just found it interesting. Um, Yeah, some fibromyalgia patients, the high level of neuroticism is accompanied by low extroversion, contributing to more severe psychosocial problems. Um, extroversion is associated with lower levels of pain, anxiety, and depression, and better mental health, therefore is a protective influence with fibromyalgia. So that's interesting that, like, if you have certain traits, it will be, you're more likely to cope 
better than people with different traits, which is just something to keep in mind. Um, right. Yeah. And if you, it says in general, any presence of any personality disorder or, you know, more negative focused personality traits have poorer results after pain treatment, worsening of the functional status, higher health care demands. So it is kind of interesting where like if you have it plus a personality disorder or you have it plus you have some of those traits that are like a negative affect and really focusing on the negative, it is likely to be worse for you. Mm-hmm. Um. And, of course, the other thing is that in terms of depression especially, um, there are studies that show that people with fibromyalgia have a lower self-esteem, which Mm. is related to reduction in cognitive performance and um, increased depression, right? Where it's like, it it does make sense a lower self-esteem kind of goes along with depression, particularly like... Uh, it's related to self-confidence and self-efficacy. Efficacy is the confidence that you have in your ability to do things, basically. Right. Um, to achieve your goals to go after things, which is usually low in fibro patients. Pain-related self-sufficiency. Um, so the beliefs and able to perform activities despite pain also tends to be damaged. Um, and it is interesting, a high positive association has been found between self-efficacy and treatment adherence. So people who believe more strongly in their ability to do things will actually adhere to their treatment plans more effectively and have better outcomes. Um, so it. it's like it manages better. Um, increase Interventions increasing at self-esteem are useful in to improve self-efficacy and the patient's ability to manage their illness. Um, I think makes sense. Like, it really is not that, you know, psychological treatment is going to get rid of the pain, but it looks like all of these things, improving self-image, improving your perceptions, Mm -hmm. feelings, and thoughts about your body um, and how it is, does help you cope much better with it, um, which I think was huge for me too, right, to work on like not hating my body, not that I really hated it like from an appearance standpoint, but there is like a certain level of resentment, now I call it like my shitty body, completely jokingly, I don't actually have that negative of an image whatsoever, I'm pretty positive about it, I tend to joke about it quite a bit, Um, but really it is interesting and I I liked this study too because I think it goes over quite a bit for one illness like how the factors work both ways how like the pain increases the mental stuff and mental stuff increases the pain and i think for yeah it's all yeah it definitely is and for not just for fibromyalgia patients this one was just that specifically because obviously i feel like i can talk about that all day every day i know Mm -hmm. a lot about this one but for a lot of those like chronic pain conditions it does seem to track for most of them that if you have chronic pain and you have certain factors, you're going to have a difficult time coping with chronic pain. So anything you can do to improve your yeah. mental health will make it much easier for you to cope with the fact that you're in pain all the time, even if it doesn't get rid of the pain. Coping with it better definitely does help. Okay. So, yeah. Well, that's that's very interessante. So yeah, we're just, uh, we're going to do a part two. We're going to leave it there for today. Yeah, because I mean, this, like we said, this can go in so many different directions and, you know, kind of, um, I don't know if you've had this experience, Megan, but it's so interesting, um, especially like when it comes to like trauma and trauma related disorders, how many people I will get coming to me that do have just like strange, unexplained, like 
autoimmune disorders or um, like mm-hmm. pains and stuff that, you know, they go doctor to doctor, they cannot figure out. And, you know, sometimes with like treatment, like it either goes away, gets better, or they learn how to manage it better. But it, it you know, there is like relation to that. And it's hard to explain. And, like, I don't always know the exact science behind these things, but like, this is a start to kind of understanding how it's all interconnected Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and yeah I do have even like people that I've worked with for a long time who just like casually mention that they've had chronic pain that they've just never brought up before in years because like no one actually listens to them is really interesting because it does there are such high amounts and I think like Lauren and I obviously because we both have super fun illnesses yeah, maybe I'll talk about mine next maybe, time. Maybe, <laughs> why not, right? Only if you're comfortable. Yeah. I'm not, of course, like, it's, yeah, it's whatever. I don't care. But I think, like, you can be more sensitive to it when you have, like, chronic... But it's such a weird thing that a lot of people, like, don't know about or don't think about. And it is... You can see, like, as a clinician, it does come up a lot with people even. Yeah. Um, like, an interesting thing, too, which I guess we can talk about more in part two. I'll do some research on this, but um, long-haul covid and physical pain yeah. and mental health issues. Let's do it. Do you have any good shit for this week? Um, I do have some good shit. So my good shit is actually a podcast recommendation, which always feels weird to talk Ooh. about, to tell our podcast listeners to listen to other podcasts. But Go listen to a different but one. But also listen to us if you want to. <laughs> Don't ditch us. I've been listening to the podcast Ridiculous Crime lately. Have okay. you heard of it? It is so funny. If you want a crime podcast that is lighter, this is a good one. It's true crime, but as they advertise it, it's 99% murder-free. So it focuses on the non-murder and just hilarious true crimes. Um, So, like, the first first episode is about a teenager that stole Guy Fieri's car. So, kind of to impress a girl, of course, because why else would a teenager, they're impressing someone, why else would they turn it in? But yeah, so it just has, like, super fun stories, it's, like, pretty light-hearted, where it's, it's a really interesting podcast. So, I've been listening to that, I've been loving it, so that's my good shit. I like it, I'll have to check it out. Let's do. Um, my good shit is, we recently got a new fridge. Ooh! Um, it has a water and ice maker. Nice. So, you know, getting super hydrated over here. <laughs> Lauren is incredibly hydrated. You guys can't see it, but she's she's glowing from the hydration. Glowing. So much water. All right, great. Well, I love the idea to do a part two. I think it's going to be great. Yeah. So, yeah. perfect. Thank you. Right, thanks guys. for getting well, spooky. Well, thanks for getting spooky.